What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2L and the host of the What to Know podcast show. Today we are in New York at the Academy of Sciences building, and we're here for the Amino Oncology A Future Look event. Uh, with CRI, and uh, we have two special guests, one of which has been on the show already, and that is Jill O'Donnell-Tormey, who is the CEO and Director of Scientific Affairs at CRI. And then we have, uh, for the first time, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Dr. James P. Allison. Uh, he is the 2018 Nobel Prize winner in medicine, um, not the Peace Prize in medicine, as some might say. Uh, he's also the Director of the Scientific Advisory Council, um, and he is the Chair of the Department of Immunology at UT MD Anderson Cancer Center. So welcome to you both. So um, we had some great discussions today, and I think what I'd like to start off with, because uh, we're going to get pretty technical during the conversation, but this audience is a healthcare-focused audience. They care about innovation, but I'm not sure everyone knows exactly what immunology is. So Dr. Allison, maybe you could start and just talk a little bit about what immunology is and how it differs from, say, you know, traditional chemotherapy or radiation treatments. Well, immunology is the field of studying our immune systems, which is uh, just the most fascinating uh, thing that protects us from bacteria and viruses, of course, and, and uh, as we know now, can, can effectively deal uh, properly manipulated with, with cancer cells as well. And this aspect of that that's attached the most, uh, attracted the most attention is a component called T-cells, and these are cells that just wander through your body, through the blood and and uh, through the tissues and percolate around looking for stuff that ought not to be there or things that shouldn't be going on and dealing with them either by killing virus-infected cells or perhaps killing cancer cells with, and sparing all your, you know, your normal cells. So it's just a fascinating, fascinating system and complicated as well. Well, I'd love to ask Jill, because I know during our, our conversation, I think it was about a year ago, we talked about the fact that CRI has been doing this for 65 years, and you've been at it for a good chunk of that here. Um, let's talk a little bit about how that's involved. And I think when you started, it wasn't really the hot thing. And now all of a sudden, people are paying a lot more attention to it, which they should, right? It's a very valuable tool in the toolkit. But you know, how has that evolved over the last uh, 10 years or so? Sure. So the Cancer Research Institute has been around since 1953, and we've always had that singular focus that we believe that we, we could support research on the immune system, that we could learn and understand how potentially the immune system could be used as a, as a way to treat, control, and maybe potentially cure some cancers. Uh, it was a, a long held belief, and our persistent vision is paying off. Uh, you know, as you said back. 10, even before 10 years, or maybe 20 years ago, a lot of people did not believe that that was a potential possibility. But I think we're very proud of the fact that we stayed the course. We funded always excellent science, and that science uh, has led us to understand how the immune system works and how it can be intelligently applied to cancer. And I think Jim has opened the field with really originally just studying T-cells is what he was interested in, but 
understanding how T cells work and how they are turned on and shut off has led to really the explosion that we've seen in the last 10 years and, and with these checkpoint blockades that are really releasing the brakes on your immune system. And we now have therapies that are really benefiting thousands and thousands of patients. So it's remarkable, but I think we're still just at the end of the beginning. We all, I think all feel, and we all know that it all comes down to doing research and science focused and always have data and a scientific hypothesis that you can prove or not prove that will get us to the next stage. Well, and that's a good segue because today we are at this future looking event. And one of the things that I really appreciated was that it wasn't just industry or just academia that were recommend that were represented, but it was both. Talk a little bit about the importance of that. And you were referenced actually several times, Dr. Allison, by um, uh, George from Regeneron and Ani from uh, BMS. And you could see there's definitely a strong tie between those. But talk about the importance of industry and academia working together to, to solve this difficult problem. Well, industry, for, for things to work properly, industry and academia have to be working together. And and I think my experience is, is, is not untypical of that. I was a professor at Berkeley um, studying fundamental immunology, specifically how are these T cells regulated, you know, how do they know when to attack, when to stop attacking, what to attack, and, you know, these are some of the major questions that we're addressing in, in my laboratory, and, and we got to a point where I'd found this molecule, CTLA-4, and shown that it was the brakes on the immune system, and I had a, the idea that if you suspended it, maybe the immune system then would have enough time or, to eliminate tumors. Uh, and so we did a lot of experiments in mice and showed that indeed that was true. We could cure almost any tumor, uh, of experimental tumor of, of, uh, of mice. And it was timed into, uh, we made an antibody to CTLA-4 to mice. And it was, I felt it was time to uh, go into people. But at um, a university, you know, there's not the ability, there's just no ability to do that. And that's where industry steps in and they you know, come in and partnered, and um, yeah, we initially worked with a company called Metarex that uh, developed a way for basically making human antibodies in mice, and so it was the ideal partner to, uh, uh, you know, begin the transition into the clinic, and so the, they, we worked together and made an antibody to the human HLA, uh, the human CTLA-4 molecule, and this went into the clinic then, and that attracted the attention of Bristol-Myers Squibb, a much larger company uh, that was better equipped to do large trials and take the whole thing all the way through approval by the Food and Drug Administration. And uh, so that's basically what happened. And so it was a, just a partnership from the time we started making the, making the actual drug for human use. She'll talk a little bit about your role because you brought these two groups today together and fascinating discussions between them. And even though industry happened as one and academia happened as the other, you could see sort of the cross-referencing between the three. Talk a little bit about the importance of what CRI is doing to help bring the right parties together and you know what that means to the industry. Yeah, so I think uh, that primarily is happening with our uh, Anna Maria Kellen Clinical Accelerator, which I think is a unique model. It's a, it's a collaborative model that is between academia, 
industry and not-for-profits. And I think by doing this, it's a, it's a venture philanthropy-backed model. And what we do is we really used a brain trust of academic clinician scientists along with our own uh, intelligence. Internally, we have a way to track the entire IO landscape. So together, that really informs us is what are some of the unanswered questions? And that new combination therapies based on immunology may be able to get us to the next space. And so it's using our philanthropic dollars to address those questions. And once we identify what drugs would be best to combine together, we then go out and actually gain access to those drugs from pharma and biotech. And they also agree to terms of return on investment if this turns out to be something that they take into development. So I think it's this kind of a really nice working together. It's not, not just investigator-initiated trials. It's bringing multi-center academics together. It's prioritizing. And there's a really great working relationship between the scientists at the you know centers where these trials are taking place and the scientists at the drug companies who know more about their drugs than most people. And it's, it's sharing data and working together and agreeing that no one can do it on their own. And so I think that's, that's the big thing. I think people have come to realize, especially with immunology, it's such a complex system, <laughs> and there's so much going on. It's not just developing one drug. You have to understand this kind of very complex interplay of a lot of different cell types and a lot of different molecules, and not one scientist has the answers. So I think it's not just one academic scientist. It's not one scientist in industry, but I think working together, and eventually, although the discoveries, I think, are coming out of academia, the initial basic discoveries, which is what fuels everything, you know, academics cannot commercialize drugs. So, you know, I think people have to understand there's a place that pharmaceutical, this is what they do. And uh, and I think that this is a very nice synergistic way of working together. No, I agree. And that came through the whole It Takes a Village uh, very clear today. There was uh, a point of, I want to say disagreement, but maybe a differing viewpoints, and that was about dig, big data. And Jill, I know you asked the, the panel what their thoughts were on that. Um, I like the fact that uh, you know Dr. Allison and Dr. Greenberg disagreed on this, and I was a little surprised to hear, uh, Dr. Allison, that you didn't disagree with that, and I think you're going to expound on this in your answer, but talk more about why you weren't as focused on the big data element right now. I, I think in what we're doing, the, the the field is so young that there's there's not enough data to need or to allow the the principles of big data and machine learning to to be brought to bear with it with where we are right now. I mean the way that the way that that works is you know you have hundreds of thousands of data points, not fifty. You know you've got hundreds of thousands, and so that's very good and. and doing something like teaching um, a machine to be able to take a radiograph, you know, an x-ray of a tumor, of, well, of a tissue, and have it recognize when there's a tumor there. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that a computer that's gotten hundreds of thousands of examples and taught how to do that will do it at least as good as a pathologist you know and uh it'll be you know good because it'll be more accurate to be no less human error um and it'll leave the pathologist to do something more interesting than, than just doing that but where we are now is is still learning the rules and um you know and where we're at is i think uh doing just a few dozen patients studying taking their tumor tissue out 
studying the kinds of cells that are in there, the T cells, other cells called macrophages, which also impinge on how the immune system deals with tumors, uh, the tumor cells themselves, all the components of the tumor, you know, microenvironment, um, and, and look at those and just begin to form, um, you know, ideas, uh, hypotheses to test to find out which are the most um, useful. And then when we've got hundreds of thousands of, of specimens from those are done with that particular combination, whatever it is, and another one, for example, and another one, the, then the machine learning can tell us what the most important things are to refine everything and make it work better. But we're just not at that point yet. No, it makes sense. Um, one of the things that didn't come up today during the conversation, and uh, Jim Weiss, who just walked into the room, and I were talking about this, Vice President Biden, who's running for presidential election, this is not a political question, but he did talk about uh, his promise to cure cancer if he was elected within his term. I think that we, when we were prepping for this, didn't necessarily disagree, but it was splitting some of the, the details of this because it's not a one size fits all. So, Joe, maybe you can start off because I know you've been quoted on that. And then, Dr. Allison, I'd love to get your take as well. Well, yeah. So, I mean, hearing what uh, Vice President Biden said, I think this is an aspirational goal. And I think it would be wonderful if uh, cancer researchers made a national priority and that there's more funding, which would be essential. I think having larger sustained funding is where in, to support research is where we're going to get the answer. That said, you know, research is not necessarily linear. And, you know, Different things happen and you have to follow different paths. So because of that, I don't think you can put a time frame on it or a dollar amount on it. I think it's a matter of giving the resources to really good and smart people and that they know they have you have their back and that they continue asking questions out of the box and, and following their research is what's going to be the answer. So while I think it's an aspirational goal, I think setting up a time frame is probably something that may not be easily met in eight years. But we had an interesting conversation. Hopefully you'll speak to this now, Dr. Allison, which is some people don't realize there are over 200 plus, you know, cancers, right? They're different diseases. They act differently. They affect different populations. One of which you said we are making, you know, some uh, headway on is skin cancer. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on there and how we can start to use some of these learnings across other um, cancers. Okay. Yeah. So, so melanoma is a particularly deadly kind of skin cancer that in 2011, which was the time of the approval of the first uh, immunotherapy drug, um, the, the median survival uh, after diagnosis uh, was about seven months or so. There was no drug that had ever increased that at all. So it was essentially a death sentence. Um, and uh, so ipilimumab, uh, uh, which is a immunotherapy drug, uh, that was first tested there. We know now that about 22% of patients that get that drug are alive 10 years after a single round of treatment. I mean, that's not the, and, and, and longer. There's, it was 19 years ago it was given to the first patient. She's still alive. And so uh, then the second drug came along called PD-1. Uh, anyway, you put them together, and that goes up to about 60%. Now, we don't know how durable that is, 
but it looks like it's going to be close. You know, 10-year survival is probably going to be close to somewhere between 50 and 60% anyway. So that one, you know, we've, all we've got to do now, we know the basic mechanisms, is add on. You know, if we could just find some more things to add to that, we can get it up close to 100% perhaps. A lot of progress in other cancers such as lung cancer, um, bladder cancer, um, any many, about 20 other kinds of diseases that, that, that have cancers that are have been approved, have immunotherapies approved for them. Um, but some, like glioblastoma and pancreatic cancer, we really know where at all right now. And so we better hope that Biden gets two terms because I think four years is not going to be enough to deal with it. <laughs> And maybe not eight, but but it's it's the same thing, you know. Some some cancers we're going to be well along, yeah. others nowhere perhaps. Well, it's someone whose aunt and uh, mother-in-law have been recently affected with glioblastoma. I really I welcome that and hope that it uh, moves quickly because it is horrible that you have these frustrating things where you don't really you can only manage the sort of end state, not uh, look for a solution. Speaking of, I do want to look forward a little bit. Um, we've touched on some of these already, but looking at what the next immuno-oncology sort of research findings are and, and where things are going, I think there was a lot of discussion about it earlier during the panels, but maybe, Jill, you could start and you just talk for 60 seconds each on what you're excited about that you're seeing coming down the pipeline. Well, I think the future is probably uh, personalized immunotherapy. I think we have a proof of principle that in certain ca ca cancers, checkpoint blockades do wonderful things. Uh, there is obviously other defects in other cancers that that's not solving. So that's why you need to bring combinations. So I think some of the combinations are activating T cells, which could be from vaccines or using, you know, T cell therapies that you actually are injecting in. And then I think there's, uh, you know, dealing with additional pathways that might be inhibiting either trafficking or infiltration of these T cells into the tumor. And I think we're, we're getting close to understanding those mechanisms. So I now I think it's just getting them to a point that we can test them in the clinic. And uh, I have high hopes that immunotherapies will become the backbone for treatment of all cancers eventually. Yeah, so what we've known up until recently is there are three uh, pillars, if you will, of cancer therapy. That was uh, surgery, radiation, and more recently, chemotherapy. Uh, immunotherapy now very quickly has become the fourth pillar of that. And the thing that sets it aside from the others is that it's flexible. It can be used with those other three. And so I think that what we are beginning to see is combinations of, of chemotherapies, with radiation, with immunotherapies, and then radiation, and the the advantage that you get is you don't have to try to you know, since since uh, chemotherapy and radiation are killing tumor cells, um, you have to kill every tumor cell if you're going to cure somebody. The immune system has the um, additional benefit of having memory. Once you've got T cells, you've got them for the rest of your life. And if the tumor comes back, the immune system can be reactivated. It seems. So I think when we, we're beginning to start to see combinations with the realization that you can decrease the dose of chemotherapy potentially or radiation, not try to kill that last tumor cell, reduce the side effects and take advantage of the combinations. And I think that immunotherapy will be a part of, of, a part, um, of, of every successful cancer therapy. Well, it's great news. Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit, and we did mention up front that you did win the 2018 uh, Nobel Prize in Medicine. 
uh, and this is going to be a two-part question, which will be relevant to some of our prize winners, but uh, any advice that you would give to future researchers in the field based on what you've learned during your extensive years studying this? My advice would be to find something that you love and, and, and try to understand. In my case, it, cancer was always at the back of my mind, but I was just really fascinated by this idea that you could have these cells that go all over your body and you know, and eliminate things, and just how they worked. Though, when I first started working on them, we really didn't even have a clue as to even how they recognized things that they ought to attack. And uh, so, it's beginning in the late 1970s, I started trying to discover the, all the complexities of T cells. And we've just scratched the surface now, I think. But it was through finding that, like a car, uh, uh, the T cells have an ignition switch like thing, which is the T cell receptor. Then they have a gas pedal molecule called CD28, which is used to be called a co stimulatory molecule. And then CTLA4, which are the brakes. It was a very simple leap, one of which we found out that inclusively showed that CTLA4 was the brakes of the immune system. We say, well, let's maybe. T cells don't do a good job with cancer because cancer could be, you know, if it's big, they run out of steam before they eliminate it. So let's just take the brakes off and maybe that'll allow them to go. But you know, the idea that it was the brakes came before the idea that, you know, we could treat cancer. And I would just tell people work on something that you find interested, fascinated, and every now and then try to think of something, you know, see what you, you might think you do. Starting with the immune system is a head start anyway because it's going to give you something important about health in general, yeah. no matter what you do. Well, it makes sense, too, and I know it's a gross generalization among this category, people called uh, millennials, but they are working more toward things that are purpose-driven, right, versus having money or material things. So I think that that criticality of doing something you love and doing something that's important to you is is really good advice. And one of the things, and this is the second part of the question, um, Jill, is we we did talk, and I think we talked about this on our last interview, but today uh, you announced the first five Lloyd J. Old Star Award recipients. Three of them were here. You're actually going to hear from three of them in a little bit. Um, but let's talk a little bit about you know the program and why CRI invests so heavily in this. Uh, so this is a new program that really came out of advice that Jim and the other associate directors of our Scientific Advisory Council said that they thought there was a need for funding of mid-career scientists. So these are scientists that are basically late-stage assistant professors, early associate professors. They've already shown themselves as independent investigators. They all have their own labs. They're doing their own research projects. But I think what we thought with this is that besides just giving them money for a grant to do a project, it's rather I think CRI has a great track record of being talent scouts. I think if you look back historically on the people that we funded very early on in the career, many of them are the superstars in the field today. So I think using our scientific advisory council to select, we wanted to pick the the current and future superstars. And so this money is a large grant. It's $1.25 million. It's over five years. And it's not tied to a project. It's really that it's selected the person for their ability to think outside the box and connect dots and do important work and that this kind of sustained resource of funding will allow them to take find something and jump off and they won't have to write a grant first to follow up on that but they'll have you'll be able to use these kind of discretionary funds to do great things and take risks and i think 
that's what makes really, the really good scientists are the ones that take risks, but also connect dots. And they're able to see things not just with a very focused, narrow lens, but they can see how some little discovery has impact much more broadly, much like Jim had done with finding CTLA-4 and then realizing, taking the brakes off, maybe that could help the immune system treat cancer. And look at where we have. I mean, thanks to him, we've opened up an entire new field of immunotherapy that's successful in patients. And uh, we're hoping that our five stars, and we're going to be doing five stars every year. So we'll be having a whole cadre of these really, really great and impressive and bright uh, scientists uh, doing great things and getting us to the next stage where we will be potentially curing some cancers. Well, it's great news. And when you hear them in just a minute, you'll understand just how bright they are and how important this is. Um, one last industry question, and then I have a fun question, and then we'll wrap up. Um, the industry-related question is, there are people like myself, right, that I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, cancer has impacted me. There are thousands, if not millions of people that feel that same way. What are some ways that people can help? I mean, I think certainly donating to CRI is one way, but I'd love to hear from both of you, maybe Dr. Allison, you know, what are, what are things you suggest to people that want to help advance the field? Well, I think first is just is to get, um, you know, is to get educated and go to places like the CRI and and learn more about what cancer really is and then uh, what's going on and, and then try to find some way uh, to spread the word and you know, help support research that, that could be important. I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I, I think we believe research is the answer to all diseases and cancer in particular. So I think it's, yeah, do your homework and find an organization like the Cancer Research Institute that spends your money well and guards it and puts it into what it should be in terms of funding the best, excellent and outstanding science there is all around the world. And so another thing I think patients should think uh, clinical trials make a real big difference. And unfortunately, only about 3 or 4% of eligible patients actually ever go into a clinical trial. And I think people should educate themselves about what it means to be in a clinical trial and that you may not only be helping yourself, but you're helping future generations. And it's only through that participation that we can get new drugs approved by the FDA. So that's another thing I think patients can do. Good. Well, so final question. question. And I wasn't going to ask this, but when I found out, Dr. Allison, that you play in a band called the Checkpoints, I thought I have to ask. So I do ask a proverbial, you know, you're stranded on a deserted island. There's one album you can take with you, which would it be and why? And I know we've already talked about what your answer is going to be. Um, some of you would be willing to share that with us. Well, I would hate to just be able to take one album. I mean, we'll let really, you sneak uh, a couple, you know. Okay, well, one of them would be almost anything by Muddy Waters. Uh, but also there's an album coming out uh, today, actually, that uh, I've heard some cuts of. Uh, it's a Willie, Willie Nelson's um, new album, and it's got some really dynamite songs on it. And uh, so, well, I, I appreciate that. My parents are huge Willie Nelson fans. I've seen him play live, and his son, I guess, is now touring, and he's playing at an event out in California. I'm going to try to see later yeah, this fall. I've, so. I've been lucky to play with him a number of times. Oh, really? Too, well, really. Of course, that's awesome. Jill, do you want to pick one? I know. Oh God, this is I'm bad for me. I, I'm not a big music fan. I, I I don't listen to music except when I'm in the car. So I think it would have to be a a Beatles album. I mean, I think Rubber Soul. Good, good choice. <laughs> uh, you know what? White, White album, album is one that I usually pick, but I like the uh, Rubber Soul. That's one that's 
really well done, but not as many people reference that. Well, this has been a true pleasure. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What to Know podcast. Uh, I've been here at the Academy of Sciences with uh, Jill O'Donnell Tormey, CEO and Director of Scientific Affairs at CRI, uh, Dr. James P. Allison, who is the 2018 Nobel Prize winner in medicine, uh, Director of the Scientific Advisory Council for CRI, and then the Chair of the Department of Immunology at UT MD Anderson Cancer Center. So thank you both for doing this, and uh, thank you for sharing all your knowledge today. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. As a postscript to our event, here are the three award winners and a little bit about why they won and why their area of research is so important. All right. Well, my name is Yvonne Chen. Uh, I'm currently in a faculty at UCLA. Um, I'm trained as a chemical engineer, and my lab focuses on engineering a variety of novel proteins uh, with a particular interest in engineering chimeric antigen receptors, or CARs. Um, these are expressed on T-cells so that we can or redirect T-cells um, to have specificity toward tumor cells. Um, my lab is interested in developing new CARs and novel proteins that T-cells can uh, make and potentially deliver into tumor cells so that we can increase the safety safety and or efficacy of T-cell therapy for cancer. Um, a few examples include bispecific CAR T-cells that can um, simultaneously target two different antigens, and that way it's more difficult for tumor cells to escape from therapy by losing any particular antigen. Um, we've also figured out a way to convert immunosuppressive signals such as TGF-beta into stimulants for our T-cells so that the T-cells would be more um, active in the tumor microenvironment. Um, so we're pursuing multiple strategies simultaneously to increase essentially the effectiveness and, and the safety profile of this um, therapeutic strategy. And it's important because I think despite all the advancements that we've seen in, in recent decades on cancer diagnoses and treatment, there are a number of conditions that are still essentially incurable. And we hope that this is one of the sort of uh, approaches that can really help us um, make major advancements against some of these uh, very difficult conditions. Great. Well, thank you, Yvonne. Amanda? So my name is Amanda Lund. I'm an assistant professor at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Um, my lab is interested in understanding how lymphatic vessels regulate immune responses in melanoma and skin. And most people, when they think about lymphatic vessels in cancer, they think about the role they play in helping tumor cells escape and metastasize to lymph nodes. Um, but these vessels are the absolute necessary route for the activation of immune responses, and that part of their biology has been underappreciated for a long time. So my lab is exploring the multiple ways we think these vessels regulate immune responses. And this um, grant is going to go a long way to really helping us expand our understanding of how these vessels work, but also to think about whether or not we can use the system to tune immune responses up or down um, and ultimately help um, cancer patients. Great. Thank you. Gregory? Hello. Um, my name is Greg Sonnenberg. I'm an associate professor at Weill Cornell Medicine of Cornell University here in New York City. Uh, my lab is interested in understanding what maintains the state of health in the mammalian uh, gastrointestinal tract. Uh, we know this is a considerable challenge given the enormous uh, surface area this organ has and the fact that it's home to a majority of our body's total immune system um, is actually found associated with the gastrointestinal tract as opposed to other parts of our body. 
And also, furthermore, that it's densely colonized with an estimated 10 to 100 trillion uh, normally beneficial microbes, termed the microbiome. Uh, and to give you a rough idea of, of how much of a microbial burden that is, there's roughly number as many uh, microbes in our intestine as there are cells in our total body, which is really a tremendous uh, number. And so we're very interested in how the immune system interacts with these microbes, how that uh, might contribute to the growth and development of tumors, um, both locally in the gastrointestinal tract, but also um, distally at other sites in the body. And critically, uh, very important work uh, that was done by by a number of uh, people who are on the the Cancer Research Institute's uh, scientific advisory board uh, defined that the microbiome actually is fundamentally important in controlling how well a patient responds to checkpoint blockade immunotherapies. And so we're interested in very uh, clearly mechanistically dissecting that and trying to figure out ways to manipulate the microbiome to boost uh, patients' responsiveness to immunotherapies. Well, thanks to all three of you. Congratulations. And I personally feel comforted knowing that we have bright minds like yourselves uh, tackling these, you know, difficult problems. So congratulations. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whogroup.com slash whattoknow.com.